So when I was young, um, I attended Vacation Bible School at Fellowship Baptist Church, and that's when I decided to ask Jesus into my heart. Um, after I was young, I did a lot of ups and downs. It was kind of like I was like the prodigal son, up and down, and I would make good choices, and I begged my mom to enroll me into a Christian school, um, and she did that, and then I feel like um, two years, I went back to public school, and um, just kind of up and down roller coaster. And it wasn't until two years ago when I really realized that um, I wanted to live my life sold out for Christ. When uh, Pastor Matt did the AHA series by Kyle Eidelman, and that was um, life-changing for me. It, uh, he talked about Luke 15, um, the prodigal son, and how he asked for his inheritance and he went and partied it away. And um, when he was finally eating slop with the pigs, he came back and asked for his father's forgiveness and they had a giant celebration. When you read it, your name is in that book. Like you are the prodigal son, no matter how far gone you are, if you're rock bottom, if it's just a little bit of sin you're dabbling in. Um, and so that was really eye-opening for me. I remember Jenny Roster posted something about Celebrate Recovery. So I reached out to Jenny and I said, hey, tell me more about Celebrate Recovery. And um, she welcomed me with open arms and I attended and um, it is 200 and, no, it is 644 days that I have been sober from alcohol. So, super cool. When you have that aha moment, there is these ripple effects that you will have broken relationships and there will be some turmoil and there will be messes that you can't control because of your decisions that you've done in the past. Um, but it's super cool that when you ride those waves with Jesus, it makes it so much easier. And um, so not only going through who I was two years ago, drinking every night, um, partying, cases of alcohol all the time. We get primers to go from here to there, um, to I am now a Moody Bible, Bible Institute um, college student. And so it's super cool to see how God's using me to dive into his word and to know more and know him. And I am a work in progress. I think, you know, the church probably sees me as, you know, this perfect family, a family of six, um, stay at home mom, everything's glorious, she loves Jesus. But on the flip side, I'm a mess. I scream at my kids. Yeah, my anxiety gets over the top. Like, it is a real struggle. But I know every day I go to bed and I wake up, I am so thankful for Jesus. And um, that's what I strive for. Thank you, Leah, uh, for letting us share that first service and now. And, and um, the reason that we, that we see videos like that, um, and, and we'll see more throughout this, this series, uh, to see those kinds of testimony videos. The reason we do that is because I want you to know something. And here, here's what we have to understand, that, that this is real, right? We aren't just talking to talk. We don't just gather together on Sunday morning because it's what we're supposed to do and it's what nice, polite, good people do um, in, a, in a civilized world. We don't, we don't come to church and sing songs just because that's the way it's supposed to be. We don't talk about the Bible and the way it transforms and changes just because um, it, it's, it's okay to do. But it's real. It does something. When we are surrendered to the Holy Spirit of God, when we become Christians, when you come to the foot of the cross and you say, Jesus, it's not working for me. I'm turning my life over to you. I know I'm broken and sinful and I'm not, I'm not able to do it right. I'm not able to have a relationship with you because I'm broken. Jesus, take my sin. He gladly takes your sin and you surrender your life, and the Holy Spirit lives in you, and you become a new person, right? And that new person is free from sin. It doesn't mean that we don't struggle. Of course we struggle. 
but we are free from the power of sin. We are free from the wages of sin that's death. And the, the pull that sin has on us is broken. And then we engage in this fancy thing called sanctification, where we start to grow to be more and more like Jesus Christ. Many of you get that. Many of you understand that, that you are called to be more and more like Jesus than you have ever been. Every day you are supposed to be wrestling and removing sin from your life and, and, and ruthlessly cutting it out and growing to be more like Jesus. That's transformation. And it's real. And it matters. It's the mark of real Christian faith is transformation. And so it's awesome for us to have videos and, and for us to see testimonies and not just there, but in small groups to hear from one another and to wrestle with these things. Why? Because it matters. Because this is what faith is about. It's about growing to be more and more like Jesus. And we can celebrate that. It's not just an idea, but it's reality. And we see it happening here in our own body. And I hope you're a part of it too. I want to encourage you to be a part of it too. And that's part of why we do this series. Like, uh, we, are, we are jumping into our new series called Long Story Short. Um, it, it's going to go on a while, right? So really, it's long story long. We're going to be in this series until the end of this calendar year. But in this series, we're going to be walking through the Bible. And so this is a long story. It's longer than the 15 weeks we're going to be tackling it, right? Uh, but what we hope to do as we work through this series is to help get to an understanding of what the Bible is. We are going to boil Scripture down to its essence, and then we are going to walk through the story of the Bible so that we can start to understand what it is that God has for us. And this matters because far too many of us, and I don't care how long you've been a Christian, like some of us have been a Christian for just a little while, or we're still trying to figure this out. And so there's always a way to learn and grow and be challenged. Some of us have been coming to church forever. And we feel like, you know what? Church doesn't really teach me anything. It doesn't really, it doesn't really convict me of anything. It doesn't really challenge me to grow or change. I just come because it's nice. I like to see the people. I like to sing the songs. But we don't really dig in. That's the wrong way to view it. Because I don't care who you are, or how long you've been a Christian, or how long you've been part of a church, the Holy Spirit in you always is pushing you and, and striving and, and moving you to grow and to be challenged and to be different. Right? I mean, I have, I figure, I did some math this week. Over the course of my life, which, 44, going on 64, it's just what it feels like sometimes. Um, but I'm 44 years old and, and I've been going to church off and on for a lot of my life until I was an adult and then in church all the time. I figure I've probably either given or listened to well over 2,000 sermons. On top of that, countless Sunday school classes that I've either been in or taught, Bible studies, small groups. I got a lot of hours of Christian teaching Right? But even still, as I listen to Pastor David's last two sermons on prayer, challenged, convicted, encouraged, taught, growing. Like, like we're never done with this. And so I think this series has the potential to really help us in our understanding and, and help us in our transformation if we let it. And what we're going to be doing here is, is we're going to be planting stakes in the ground. Now, here's the thing. This is not a stake. And the reason is because um, I didn't think that the building team would be really thrilled if I drove a stake into the ground on the stage. I thought they would have a talking with me, and I didn't want to. So this is a curtain rod. But let's pretend it's a stake. And what we are going to do in this series is we are going to drive markers. We are going to drive stakes in the ground. Today we start in Genesis 1-1, where we are going to look and we are going to understand what's happening in the story of Scripture in Genesis 1-1, at its very core, at its beginning, at its essence. We will drive this stake into the ground, and then we will move through Scripture methodically, understanding um, what God has for us in those moments. See, here's the, the mistake we make. Let's pretend I drove this stake in the ground. Let's pretend it's going to stay here. So then here's the thing. As we move forward, 
right, we're going to see how the story of Scripture unfolds. One of the things that our culture started to believe, and this is a, this is a problem in our culture, our culture started to believe that the Bible was about us. Like many of us have grown up reading the Bible or hearing about the Bible or showing up in church, and we have this idea that the Bible is about us. Listen to me. The Bible is not about you. The Bible is not about me. Right? We are going to put stakes in the ground and we are going to look at the story of Scripture from the perspective of the author of Scripture. That's God. We'll learn that in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God, before anything else, he creates everything, including the Bible. And we are going to look at what the purpose of Scripture is. And it's not a story about us. God is the protagonist. God is the main character. We have a part to play. We have a role to play. Listen, we, church, we are the heroine of the story. We are the one that God is chasing. We are the damsel in distress. We are the one needing rescued. The Bible is an epic story. It's true. It's epic, and it is the story that set the tone for all other classic stories after. You know, we watch those movies, those action movies, those superhero movies, all of those movies about right and wrong and the struggle, about true love and pursuing your heart's desire and all of those things. The Bible is the core of that. It is this true epic story of good and evil and right and wrong, of heroes and monsters. The Bible is this story of a God who creates and loves with passion and then pursues those that are lost, not because they deserve it, but because he loves them and he woos them and he redeems them, he ransoms them and he recaptures them. And the Bible will culminate with this fantastic marriage supper of the Lamb where the bridegroom, Jesus Christ, will take his bride, the church, that's us, onto himself in a new heaven and a new earth. The Bible is this epic story, but we've got to do better at understanding it. So we are going to plant stakes in the ground as we go so that we, no matter how long we've been Christians, can start to understand the story, what it's about, and where we fit. We're also going to take this thread, this rope, and we're going to start here in Genesis 1, and we will weave this through. We're going to see how God weaves this rope, this thread through the story of Scripture. And this thread is Jesus Christ. Because going back to Genesis 1, all the way to the end, the lover of our souls, the pursuer of us, God himself, right? The plan of redemption is Jesus Christ. And so we're going to see how this comes out. Now, um, some of you are thinking, Matt, I know the Bible. I know the story of the Bible. This, this, uh, you got nothing for me here. Trust me, we're going to, we're, it's going to be okay. We're going to learn. We're going to be challenged. And, and by the time we're done, we're going to have a better understanding of what God has for us in Scripture. And we're going to have a better understanding of what our role is. We're going to have a better understanding of what he's asking us. You know, people love the Bible. The Bible is the number one best-selling book of all time. A lot of people hate the Bible, too. Voltaire, a famous French philosopher, about 220 years ago, in the Age of Enlightenment, Voltaire said, um, the Bible will be obsolete and gone in 100 years. Of course, he was obviously wrong. We still have it today. We still know it. We still study it. We still know that it's something good, right? But he was convinced that in the Age of Enlightenment, the Bible would be gone. In the 1930s, uh, the Soviet Union published a government dictionary of foreign terms so that its people could know what these foreign things were um, and know how to rightly think about them according to the government. And so the Soviets, in their, 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 their dictionary of foreign terms, here's what they said about the Bible. It's a collection of different legends, mutually contradictory, written at different times and full of historical errors, yet still issued by churches as a holy book. Right? So many people throughout history have hated the Bible. 
Many people throughout history have revered the Bible. There's, there's a guy about 100 years ago, the king of Ethiopia, King Menelik II, the emperor of Ethiopia, revered the Bible so much that here's what happened. Every time he got sick, he would tear out a page of the Bible and eat it. Sure that ingesting the word of God would cause him physical health. Uh, in 1913, recovering from a stroke, he, he was feeling especially ill. He had his aide rip out First Kings and Second Kings, and he asked him to feed it to him one page at a time. Of course, he died before he could finish. Um, that's not what the Bible's for, right? He knew that the Bible was powerful, but he didn't understand its power. But here's the thing that we know. We know that the Bible, the Word of God has power because it is God. This Bible that you have in front of you, many of you have it in your home. Many of you have multiple copies in your home. This is the word of God. And it is living and active and breathing and it is instructive and it is useful and it corrects and it admonishes and it encourages us. It changes us. This is living, right? This is the word of God. And, and we know that Jesus Christ in John 1, Jesus Christ is referred to as the word. He is the word that we have in front of us. This is living. This is God breathed. This matters. And we know that as a church. Right? We know as a church that the Bible should be revered, and that's what happens. Americans revere the Bible. But here's the deal. They don't read it. Americans revere the Bible, but we don't read it. And so here's what I'm going to ask. You don't have to raise your hand. You don't have to say anything out loud. But I want to ask you this. One, answer to yourself. Do you believe that this Bible is the authoritative, absolute word of God. It is God-breathed. What's in here is true, and it's God's words for us. Do you believe that? Just answer that question to yourself. I mean, you can, you, you can shout it out loud if you want to, but whatever. Um, do you believe it? And then answer this follow-up question. Did you open it this week? Did you spend time reading it this week? Did you love it? If this is God's words for you, did you interact with them in a way that allows them to change you? And if you did open it, did you spend more time watching this or reading this or watching Netflix? I mean, listen, I like Netflix. And some of you are like, I didn't watch Netflix. Okay, fine, Hulu. Sure, YouTube, go with it, whatever, man. But we spend more time watching and streaming than we do, even if we deign to open the Word of God, than we do interacting with the Word of God. Even if we think we're doing well, right? We open it up, we flip to something, and we randomly read for 10 minutes to start the day. We close it up, and we spend hours streaming music, watching TV, watching movies. The problem is this. We don't revere God's Word. We know we should right? We know we should revere it as a book, but we don't revere the words in it. And because of that, we are biblically illiterate. George Gallup did a poll. I'll just share a couple results of you. And this poll was of evangelical born-again Christians. These are people that claim to have come to the foot of the cross and turned their life over to Jesus Christ so that they could be right with God. Of those people, evangelical Christians, 30% say that Jesus was a great teacher, but not God. 30% of people who say they are born-again Christians because they trust Jesus to forgive them of their sins say Jesus is just a good guy. He's not a God. 46% believe the Holy Spirit isn't God, just an impersonal force. 18% believe that the Holy Spirit can tell me to do something the Bible says no to. One out of every five Christians firmly believes that the Holy Spirit can tell them yes to something the Bible says no to. That's a problem. 65% believe that Jesus is the first and greatest being that God ever created. Not that he's God himself. God in flesh. 51% that, 
I'm sorry, 49% don't believe that sin deserves hell. 46% believe that everybody sins a little, that, but people are mostly just good. That people don't really need to be saved. They're basically good people already. 42%, 42%, four out of every 10 believe that God will not only accept the worship of Christians, but the worship of other religions as well. Islam, Judaism, Buddhist. 39% believe that God will always reward faithful behavior with material blessings. 60% of people don't know, 60% of Christians don't know that Jesus gave the Sermon on the Mount. According According to this Gallup research, less than half of Christians can name all four Gospels. And three out of 10, I'm sorry, 20%, two out of 10 church going teens don't know why we celebrate Easter. We love the Bible, we just don't revere what's in it. And the main reason people give for not reading their Bible, not reading it regularly, not reading it systematically is this. They don't understand it. Most people will argue, most Christians will argue that they just don't understand the Bible. That when they open it up, it's like reading stereo instructions. Let me ask you a question. How many of you go home at the end of a long day? Right? You get yourself a drink, right? You pop open the can of soda, sit down on the couch, put your feet up, and you open up your Ikea instructions, how to build a cabinet, and you just read them for fun. Anybody? For a lot of people, that's what the Bible is like, right? They open it up, and they try to read what's in it, and it reads like instructions that they don't understand, And so they they close it and they don't know it. Or when they read it, they read the parts that they know and understand over and over again and ignore the rest of it. Um, The parts that make sense and ignore the parts that they don't get. And ultimately what happens is we become illiterate and we don't know the story of scripture and we don't know what God is like and we don't know how we fit. And so we have got to deal with this. And so we're going to jump in and and we're just going to set up our first stake in the ground. And that stake in the ground is this, Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, before everything else, God was. Okay, now the reason this is important is because this is the first, it's Genesis 1-1. These are the first lines in scripture. And there is so much theological goofiness packed into this that if we're not careful, it will cause us to, to have a brain meltdown, close our Bibles and walk away. Right? In the beginning, before anything else existed, is God. Like, there is nothing except God. Right? And so I remember as a kid, sitting in Sunday school, and I asked the Sunday school teacher. um, Now, I I told this first service, and I I, I failed to mention this part, but she is long since deceased. Um, She loved Jesus. I will hang out with her in heaven someday, and we will have a good laugh at this. So I'm not really telling on my grandma but I'm telling on my grandma. My grandma was my Sunday school teacher. Um, Well, my grandma was a Sunday school teacher at the the little Southern Baptist church I grew up in. And, And so she wasn't my Sunday school teacher, but she was covering our class one Sunday, whatever. You don't care about all those details, do you? Anyway, it doesn't matter. So here's the deal. Grandma is talking about God and how God creates everything. And so you ask this, this clarifying question, grandma, If God created everything, who created God? And what you got from grandma when you asked that question was a look. That that was not a question to be asked. Right? Like, like, you know what? Just listen to the story and be quiet. Don't ask again. Because it's confusing. 
right? We know God creates everything, so who creates God? Well, nobody creates God. The Bible teaches us that God is self-existent. He's pre-existent. He's self-sufficient. He doesn't need anything. God has always existed. So you think, oh, so God has existed from the beginning. And then you get corrected. You're like, no, no, no. Before God creates things, there was no beginning. There was no time. Time wasn't even a thing. It was just God, just God being. And right about now, your brain starts to melt. Because it doesn't make any sense. And we start to get this idea just from Genesis 1-1 that for God, there is nothing we can know. Like, we can't understand God. He's so far above us. He's so far away from us. He's always been. Nothing exists that God didn't create. Time wasn't even a thing until God decided it should be a thing. And we start to melt down a little bit. And we think, well, God can't be known. But then the Bible goes on to show us that God can absolutely be known. God can absolutely be known, and God is real and personal. And this is the struggle we have in our culture. There are a couple different ways to look at this. One, atheism is a popular way to view... Yeah, just stay there. Atheism is a popular way to view this in our world. Atheism is this. Atheism is the belief that there is no God. That the only thing that exists is the physical, material world. Atheism will teach us that if you can't see it or touch it or figure it out physically, it is not real. There is no God. Atheism would also go so far as to teach that belief in God is the number one evil that people commit. That believing in God and teaching others to believe in God is evil. Because there is no God. Atheism would point out, and rightly so, that many, many atrocities over the course of history have been committed in the name of people claiming to follow God. The crusades that Christians were guilty of. Jihads and holy wars that Muslims are guilty of. All of these things happen in the name of God. Atheists would say there is no God and belief in God leads to evil. Agnostics, agnostics would say this. Well, of course there's a God. The world didn't just create itself. Of course there's a God, but there's no way you can ever know God. Right? It's the God of the Bible, isn't it? That's just human ideas. And, and, and the, the God of, of Islam, isn't it? That's just human ideas. And the God of, of all of these other religions, that's not it. Those are just human ideas. What they would say is there's a God, but God can't be known. And since God can't be known... They do one of two things. They either act like there is no God. They say, well, God's real, but since we don't know God, we don't know what he wants, we don't know how he wants us to be, we're just going to act like there isn't a God. Or even worse, too, here's what they do. They say, since God can't be known, we're going to take parts of God that we like and reject all the other parts. And they treat it like it's a salad bar. You ever go through the salad bar? Why? That's my legitimate question. You're like, yeah, I go to the salad bar at Pizza Ranch. Why? You know they have pizza there. Whatever, it doesn't matter. Um, so this is, this is the example I used in first service, and, and then I, I felt bad about it, and then I thought about it. No, it, it's true. So when Carrie and I go through the salad bar, right, we, we choose differently. I get iceberg lettuce the way lettuce should be. Light green and tasteless. She gets romaine. It's dark green and leafy and it tastes bad. I get cheese and bacon bits. She gets beets and other things. Hers looks pretty and tastes terrible. Mine tastes okay. It's cheese and bacon. Right? On, on, a, on a bed of tasteless lettuce. Doesn't matter. Point is, that, point is that why would anybody eat salad? But also, what we do when we're agnostic sometimes is we act like we're at the salad bar. We take the parts we want and we leave the parts we don't. Right? We want grace and mercy. Awesome. We want holiness and responsibility. No, thank you. Leave those on the salad bar. Right? We want forgiveness for ourselves. Great. We want this idea that we have to forgive others. No thanks. Leave that on the salad bar. Right? 
We want, we want God to bless us when we're faithful. We want financial blessings when we're faithful. We'll take that, right? We, we want sexual fidelity. We, we want to be sexually, no, we don't want that. Leave that on the salad bar, right? So what we do is we start creating our own God in this way. We say, well, if God can't be known, then I can create the God I like and feel good about it and be spiritual and tell people that I'm spiritual. And this is kind of the culture that we live in, right? People think God can't be known And so I either will live like there is no God or I'll create the one that I like best. But Genesis 1-1 tells us really clearly, hey, there is a God and he is over everything. This is the start of the epic story that God tells us. There is a God. He existed before creation. He existed before time was a thing. He's always been real. And then the rest of the Bible tells us how he can be known. That he's not a God that's unknown. He's a God that can be known. And so I'm going to share with you here as we, uh, as we just go through the rest. Hey, buddy. I'm going to share with you as we go through the rest of week one here um, at this stake in the ground, Genesis 1-1. I'm going to tell you what the Bible tells us about God. And I think it's important because here's the truth. A.W. Tozer says this. We've shared it before. But what you believe about when you think about God, what comes to your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. Friends are great. Family is great. Loved ones, spouses, children, your job, your resources, your mission. All of that is great. And we spend time and energy thinking and pouring into those things. But none of them are the most important thing. Tozer says, and we agree, the most important thing, right? What comes to your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. For most of us, when we think about God, we don't know what to think. Because we don't know him. In fact, I'd venture to say this. If you've ever opened up the Bible and you've tried to read it and the words are foreign to you and it seemed like a different language or it seemed like this is not a God that you could relate to and you didn't understand, I would venture to bet, I I would go all in on this, that if you're opening the Bible and you don't get it, it's because you don't know God. You don't understand him. But the God of Scripture can be known personally. J.I. Packer says, once you become aware that your main business, the main thing that you are alive for, is to know God, then all of the other stuff that you worry about will just fall into place of its own accord. It'll just fall into place. All right, so let's dig in. I got 13 of these. We're going to go through them pretty quickly. Uh, But these are attributes of God. These are characteristics of God. These are things that you can know. And uh, I think we'll help you as we set up shop on this, this first stake in the ground. One, God is personal. It's the opposite of agnosticism. Agnosticism says, yes, there's a God, but you can't know him. Christianity, the God of the Bible teaches that he is personal and that you can know him. In fact, Jeremiah 29, 13 says, if you look for me wholeheartedly, you will find me. You ever play hide and seek with your kids? It's a terrible game. Terrible game. Because they're not good at hiding. And you have to pretend like they are. Listen, listen, right here. You're not good at it. Right? But we have to pretend. But here's the other thing. I am an excellent hider. I remember when Travis was little, I was such a good hider that sometimes he would get bored looking for me and quit. And I wouldn't know it. And I would stay hidden for a really long time. He'd just go watch TV and be like, I can't find him. Oh, well, no big deal. Right? But the point of this is, is you don't have to search for God. You don't have to search for God. I know it says, it says, if you look for me wholeheartedly, like Matt, it says you have to look for him. No, no, no. There's no map that you have to follow. There's no clues that you have to unearth. Right? This isn't some epic treasure hunt like Goonies. Right? This is just this thing. You have to search for God. You know how you search for God? If you do it with your whole heart, that's the whole map. Search for God wholeheartedly. Really want to find him. And God says this, if you really want to find me, if you look for me with your whole heart, if you really want to know me, guess what? You'll find me because I'm not hiding from you. I'm right here. He says, if you just look for me, I'm right here with your whole heart. That's all you need to do. 
You don't need to uncover rocks. You don't need to travel the globe. You don't need to sit through rituals. You don't need to do all of the rules and regulations. There's nothing wrong with those things. They're fine. You don't need to travel to certain parts of the world. You don't need to pray facing certain directions. You don't need to do any of that. What you need to do is you need to, with the whole of your heart, want to know God, and he will make himself known to you. That's all you have to do. God is personal. If you look for him with your whole heart, you will find him. Now, God is a mystery. We will never know everything there is to know about God because he's the creator and we are the created. Right? He is on a different level than we are. We will never know everything about God, but if we look for him, we will find him. He is personal, and there are so many things that we can know. Not only is God personal, but he's powerful. All-powerful. The word is omnipotent. God's power is in his nature. You have power. You're born and you grow in power, intellectual power, physical power. And then as you grow, it diminishes. But God's power is inherent in who he is. It's not given to him. It's just his because of him. He is all-powerful. Right? Here's another question you can ask grandma in Sunday school class. Grandma... If God's so powerful, can he make a rock that's so heavy that he can't lift it up? And then you get more side-eye by grandma as she threatens to send you out of the room. Whatever. Anyway, here's what Daniel says. All the people of the earth are nothing compared to him. He does as he pleases among the angels of heaven. And, he, and who among the peoples of the earth? No one can stop him or say to him, what do you mean by doing these things? The idea here is, is God is powerful. There is no one that is his equal. Right? And that matters because the more we know about God, the more we understand the story of Scripture. Right? So we know that he's personal and he wants a relationship with us. And we know he's powerful. There is no power that rivals his. Three, we know that God is present everywhere. We call this omnipresence. God is present everywhere. God fills every inch of the universe. Now, I want to be careful here because in this agnostic world we live in, there is this point of view that says God is everything in the universe. And I didn't say that. And the Bible doesn't teach that. We just got back from vacation. We were in uh, North Carolina. It's gorgeous. We drove through mountains. We sat on the beach. We looked at the waves of the ocean, the sunset, all of it. It was awesome. God is there in those things. He fills every inch of the universe. But here's the deal. God is not the beach. God is not the waves. God is not the mountain. God is not the sunset, right? God is the creator of those things and his presence is everywhere. Please don't misunderstand to think that everything is God. It's pantheism. It's not Christianity. The Bible doesn't teach it. But the idea here is that if God's presence is everywhere, then the truth is he's always with us. He says, I can never escape from your spirit. I can never get away from your presence. If I go up to heaven, you're there. If I go down to the grave, you're there. If I ride the wings of the morning, if I dwell by the furthest oceans, even there your hand will guide me and your strength will support me. Later, Psalm 139 says, you know everything about me, God. My life is like a book that you wrote. God is everywhere, which means he is always with me. Listen to me. You are never. Remember when I said, you know, God is personal. If you look for him with your whole heart, you'll find him. You know why? Because he's everywhere. He is always with you. You just got to want him. God knows everything. We call this omniscience. He controls the course of world events. He removes kings. He sets up other kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the scholars. Here's the other thing we know about God. He knows all that there is to know. There is nothing that God doesn't know. For some of you, that should be comforting. He knows your heart. Even when you sin, he knows that it's not, that it's not what you wanted to do. When you struggle, he knows your struggle. When it's hard, he knows it's hard. It gives us comfort to know that God knows our heart and soul. For some of you, 
should be a scary concept. It means God knows that you're faking. God knows when you're not being honest with him and with his people. But God knows. He knows everything. And because he knows everything, he knows me personally, inside and out. And God is sovereign. Sovereignty means that God gets his way. And of course, this makes sense, right? Let's track this through. God is powerful. So there's nothing that God wants to do that he can't do. God is present everywhere, so there's nothing happening that he doesn't know about. And God is omniscient, so he knows all there is to know, even the hidden motives and intentions. So God is sovereign and that everything that happens is in his control. And some of you are thinking, many of you have sat in my office or you've sent me notes that say, Matt, if God is sovereign, why does crap happen? Why do we have to deal with things that aren't great? Why do we have to deal with problems and suffering and pain and all of those things? If God is sovereign, why does all of that exist? And listen, the world is still broken. And God never promised. I wish he would have. God never promised to take away every pain in this life. But God does promise two things. That if we allow him to, he'll redeem it in this life. He'll make it matter. He'll make it worth something. And two, that it will pale in comparison to the future that is waiting for us in heaven. I don't know why bad things happen, but here's what I know. God is powerful, and so there's nothing that he can't do. God is wise. He knows everything that could possibly happen, and, and, and God is um, everywhere. And so there's no place that he's not a part of. And he's sovereign. And because he's sovereign, I can trust him. God is holy. The holiness of God, this is where people start to, uh, they play in the salad bar a little bit. Because the holiness of God requires a response from you. The power of God requires you just to say, wow, God's powerful, I know it. The wisdom of God requires you to say, man, God knows everything and I know it. How cool is that? The omnipresence of God requires you to say, man, God is always near me. But the holiness of God, the holiness of God requires a response. Because the Bible teaches clearly that God can be known, God's will can be known, And that part of God's character is that he is holy. And part of a holy God is calling his people to holiness. This is why we say that as Christians, we don't play with sin. We don't tolerate sin in our lives. We all sin. Of course we do. Every single one of us is guilty of sin. But when we sin, we repent from it. And we work to cut it out of our lives. I appreciate Leah's video in, in this. Like, like, she's like, man, I, I'm not perfect. Like, I'm, 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 a, I'm a hot mess. You didn't say hot mess. But it's what I imagined you saying. So I'm a hot mess. Right? I lose it on my kids. I don't always do what I want to do. I would imagine sometimes she's not as nice to Jeff as he deserves. Amen. Jeff agrees. Because he's not as wise. No. Um, but, but here's the thing, right? Like, like, we sin. Of course we sin. Right? But the holiness of God does not require perfection. The holiness of God requires that we pursue holiness in response. When we sin, we confess our sin. We work to ruthlessly cut it out of our lives so that we don't continue to wantonly sin. Right? You will not be perfect, but the holiness of God, because we can know him and he's personal and it requires a response, means that we pursue holiness. If you won't pursue holiness, then I would venture to say that you don't know God like you should. Because God requires holiness. First Peter says, so you must live as God's obedient children. Don't slip back into your old ways of living to satisfy your own desires. You didn't know any better then, but now you must be holy in everything you do, just as God who chose you is holy. A few more of these. God is truth. Because God is truth, we can trust everything he says to be true. Listen to me. 
the Bible is not to be toyed with. The Bible is not to be compromised. As we walk through the story of Scripture, there are going to be things in it that are hard to reconcile. But they're still true. Because God is truth. As the creator of all things and the knower of all things, God sets the standard for truth. Um, There are a lot of people who assume, right, that God is at odds with truth. Right? It's part of the atheist push or the agnostic push that God is at odds with truth. But God is the author of truth. All truth that we will ever find in mathematics, physics, biology, science, all of the truth that we will ever find in those things, here's what we know. They are rooted in God. All of the truth of the physical world is true because God has said it. All of the natural laws that are in place, gravity, right? Rotation of the earth, the seasons, everything that is naturally in place, all of the laws of the physical world that hold it up together, the way they're there because God has set them there. Everything exists and is found and rooted in God's truth. Here's what it says. It says, God is not a man, so he doesn't lie. He is not human, so he doesn't change his mind. He is, has he ever spoken and failed to act? Has he ever promised and not carried it through? God is all truth. And he's righteous. And he calls us to righteousness. It's right living. Throw off your old sinful nature and your former way of life, which is corrupted by lust and deception. Instead, let the Spirit renew your thoughts and attitudes. Put on your new nature, created to be like God, truly righteous and holy. He calls us to something better. And he's just. As many times as you thought, it's not fair. It's not fair that people can get away with things. It's not fair that somebody doesn't have to pay the price for their wrongdoing. It's not fair that that person hasn't been found out. God is just. And God's justice will have its day. And that's good news for us. And if we're not careful, it's bad news for us. 2 Corinthians says, we must all stand before Christ to be judged. You will, I will stand before Christ to be judged. That is going to happen. We will all stand before Christ to be judged. We will receive whatever we deserve for the good or evil we've done in this earthly body. The good news is this, for Christians, the judgment looks different. For non-Christians, for those that don't know Jesus... The judgment will be on whether or not there was sin in their life that was not paid for. They either let Jesus pay for it or they chose to carry it themselves. For non-Christians, they've chosen to carry it themselves. That judgment will be hell. For Christians, that judgment has been paid for by Christ. So our judgment will be for what did we do as Christians What did we do with our new life? Did we waste it away? Were we selfish? Did we we keep it to ourselves? Right? Did we refuse to forgive people that hurt us? Did we refuse to engage in ministry? Did we just sit back and do our own thing? Or did we actively engage in the mission that God has for us? See, again, it's another reason why we watch these testimonies because we can be encouraged by them, right? So as we're watching Leah, she's like, look, I know I've got forgiveness. I know I've got new life. I know I'm not perfect, but I know I want to do something with that new life. So here's how I'm going to start. I'm going to go back to school and I'm going to learn about ministry and I'm going to learn about the God of the universe and I'm going to figure out what that means. And you don't have to go back to school, right? You don't have to go back to school, but here's what I want to encourage you to do. If you are new in Christ, right, then there's a responsibility that you have to live like it, to pursue holiness, to pursue righteousness, and to do something worthy of the calling that you've been given. So that when the judgment comes, here's what you want to hear. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into my rest. It's what we long to hear. 
Not only is, is God just, but God's love. God's love actually permeates through his other attributes. Um, and so for those of us that are in Christ, here's what it says. When you decide to surrender to Christ, here's what, here's what Paul says. Look, I'm convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Not life or death. Not angels or demons. Right? Not your fears for today or your worries about tomorrow. Not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. Nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed to us in Christ Jesus our Lord. When you are in Christ, he loves you with a covenant, unconditional kind of love that will not be compromised. Which means he's merciful. If we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all wickedness. He loves us and that love leads to his mercy. And it pours into his faithfulness. We can hold tightly to the promise of forgiveness at the cross. We can hold tightly to the promise of a future in heaven. We can hold tightly to the promise that God is with us no matter what because he's faithful. Let's hold tightly without wavering to the hope we affirm for God can be trusted to keep his promises. He is faithful. And finally, we can trust that he'll be faithful because what we know from scripture, God is knowable and he will never change. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. So what, what we have is, is we start in Genesis 1-1. We plant the stake that says, okay, in the beginning, before anything else, right, before we do anything else in the story of Scripture, before we dig into this epic tale of love and loss and heroes and, and monsters and redemption and forgiveness and love and all of these things, before we pour into that, we know that it starts with just this. It starts with God. And God isn't unknowable, but there are a lot of things we can know about God. We know that he is near, and he's personal, and he's powerful, and he's wise. Right? We know that he's present. We know that he's just, and he's faithful, and he's good, and he loves us, and he's merciful. And all of these things about God, and that he will never change. And from that, we launch into the story of Scripture. And here's what I want you to know about the story of Scripture. Last thing. If we boil it down to its essence, if we just boil it down to just its very core, here's what scripture is about. It's a love story. If you boil it down to its essence, it's a story of love. That's what Jesus did for us in Matthew 22. Some Pharisees, some teachers of law, they were trying to trick Jesus, trying to get him to say that some parts of, of the Old Testament were more important than other parts of the Old Testament. He wasn't having it. He said, look, stop. Just listen to this. He said, the most important commandment is this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. Luke adds strength. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love God with everything you have. And the second commandment that's so great is just like the first. Love your neighbors as you love yourself. The entire law, the entire word of God, the entire scriptures land on these two commandments. So you want to know what the Bible is about is its essence. Loving God, loving people. This Bible that's so complicated at times to understand. And I understand why it's complicated. Because it doesn't always seem to fit. And we're going to deal with that in this series. As we plant more stakes in the ground, we're going to deal with all of these. Right? But the Bible at its essence, at its core, is about loving God and loving people. You're like, but Matt, what about kicking Adam and Eve out of the garden? Yeah, I know. I get it. We're going to deal with sin. But, but here's the deal. At its core, that's about loving God and loving people. But, but Matt... What, what about the flood? What about, what about this massive flood that, that, that wreaks havoc and, and, and kills? What about the genocide that happens as we get into to Exodus and Numbers and, and Joshua? What about, what about this wiping out of entire communities? Yeah, I know it's hard to figure out and we're going to deal with it. We're planting stakes in the ground. We're going to see how it weaves and we're going to get there. But here's what I want you to know. It is boiled down at its essence to this. Love God love people. 
And we're going to get, we're going to, get to, the, to the, the, the judges and the goofiness that happens in the judges. And we're going to get to the kingdoms with, with kings that sometimes follow and sometimes rebel against God. Books of wisdom and prophets, major, major prophets, minor prophets. And, and we'll get to this moment of the incarnation when, when God steps into human history. And we'll deal with the church and the struggles of the church and how it consummates at the wedding supper where hell will happen. Hell will happen for people. And you're like, Matt, I don't know that I can reconcile and see how that all plays together. And I'm going to say here, I get it, and it's complicated, and it's confusing, and we are going to plant stakes in the ground, and we are going to walk through, and we are going to understand it. But at its essence, this is what it is. Love God, love people. Stick with us as we go through this, because it'll start to make sense as we start to see the story unfold. At its core, at its essence, this is about Loving God, loving people. It's not about rituals. It's not about ceremony. There are rituals and ceremony in it. It's not about animal sacrifices. There are animal sacrifices in it. It's not about holidays that look behind to these great events or look forward to future events. You'll find those in there. It's not about going through the motions of of baptism and communion and all of those things. Those are in there and they're important. But at its core, what this is about, loving God, loving people. And we'll see how that weaves. As we wrap up today, the last thing I'll tell you is this. The only way this will make sense to you is if you know God. The only way this will make sense to you is if you know God. There is a significant difference between knowing God and knowing about God. You can listen to sermons. You can read the Bible. You can listen to podcasts and watch videos. And you can know a lot about God. Knowing about God is good. But it doesn't really make sense to you until you know him personally. And the only way to know God personally, it's not through any ritual that you would ever participate in. It's not through any um, class that you ever take. It's not any of those things. The way that you know God personally is surrendering to Jesus Christ. If you haven't surrendered yourself to Jesus Christ, then you don't know God. You might know about him but you don't know him. And here's what I want to do. I want to give you the invitation as we close today to know him personally by surrendering to Jesus Christ if you've not yet done that. I'm going to pray for us to close us. As part of that prayer, I'm just going to offer an invitation. And if you, in the heart of hearts, if you are being drawn by the Holy Spirit to respond, to say, you know what, for the first time, I want to surrender to Jesus, then I just want to offer that to you now. Pray along with me. Um, and, And I would say, let's talk after the service. Let's have a conversation so that we can talk about what your next steps are. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, God, we just come before you this morning and and we just want to tell you that we love you. We thank you for your word. Even though it can sometimes be confusing and daunting, we know that it is living and active and it's your words for us. We apologize, Father. We confess that we have neglected it. We have not treated it and revered it the way that we should, knowing that it's living and active and it's your words to us. Father, we confess to you that sometimes it's confusing. Father, I pray that you will help us and guide us through the power of your spirit as we, as we start to understand the story of Scripture. We thank you for the truth that Jesus shares that it's at its essence. It's about loving God and loving people. And we thank you that the author of this word is you. And that you are not a God who is far away from us, but that you are a God who is personal. And that you are a God that can be known. Your word tells us that if we look with our whole heart that we will find you. And Father, looking with our whole heart means that we come through Jesus. Father, I pray that if there's some here that don't know you personally, that have not surrendered to Jesus, that, that through the power of the Holy Spirit, you would guide them and you would prompt them and convict them of their need for salvation. And for those that, that feel like that's where they are and that you've, you've brought to that place, Father, we pray. Lord, we know that we're sinners. We know that we've made mistakes and that those mistakes have kept us away from you. 
God, we know that we can't have a relationship with you because of the sin in our lives. And we know that the wages of that sin is death. But Father, we want new life. And so we thank you for sending Jesus, your one and only son, who voluntarily gave up his life on the cross so that my sin could be on him. Father, we ask that you make his sacrifice count for us, that you take our sin and put it on him, and that you make us new. And Father, as we're new, we pray that you help us to live a life that's transformed. It won't be easy and we'll make mistakes, but that you'll help us pursue holiness. Father, we love you and we praise you and we thank you for all things. Amen.